0: There's a program on the local public radio station that, I don't know if it's, I think it's on a daily basis, uh, introduces its listeners to new or modern, what you would call classical or Western art music. And I'm reminded that, as I've listened to that before, this program, I can still hear it in my mind, this program is brought to you by the Composers Forum, reminding you that all music, once new. All music was once new. Well, of course, you you get the idea, right? They're trying to say Beethoven once put his final period on something, and it was brand new. And so we are composing today, and we, our music is brand new as well. Well, whether you think the standard of the modern composer lives up to Beethoven, I will leave entirely to you with uh, with no judgment um, uh, of my own to be expressed other than <clears throat> coughing. I'm reminded of that because a statement could be equally true. All history was once new. That is to say, we look back to history and Maybe some of you are history buffs. I'm interested. I don't know that I would say I'm a history buff, like some perhaps of you, but I'm interested by little factoids or little thoughts. It is important for us to remember that the history we study, particularly the biblical history, was once new. These people who experienced, who lived through biblical history, are no different than you or me. They are made of the exact same stuff. Human nature has not changed in the thousands of years of history that have gone by, that the, the, the difficulties and challenges we are confronting today are just as new as history was when we read about it in our Bible. And in the same way, you could say, what is new today will someday very soon become history. Someday, if Jesus tarries 100 or 200 or 1,000 years from now, they will look back to history in the year 2022 in the same way that we look back to what happened in 1922 or 1,022 or A.D. 22. History, all history was once new, and all what is new will soon become history. And I start there because we are approaching a election a time in which our country seems, if you are looking at it through a particular perspective, to be at the at the risk of fraying at the seams, coming apart at the seams, holes being ripped up in it. People, as I said this morning in our announcements, I saw a poll um, recently or a survey recently that about 80% of Democrats today believe that if the Republican agenda is unchecked, it will lead to the complete demise of our country. And eight, about 80% of Republicans believe the exact same thing about the Democrats. Democrat agenda. I mean, a belief, a, a well, a very, very strong belief across our political spectrum that these are existential elections, that a loss in this election could be the end of our country as we know it. And that, as I said this morning, creates a very great risk. The great risk is that when we view things as existential, that is, to as uh, the, the, the existence, the very existence of our Country, it provokes some to act in ways that are that are not consistent with with biblical principle, with biblical teaching. And this evening, I'd like to turn to Isaiah forty-one, and I'd like to look at a man who was an existential threat to much of the world as it was known in the days of this prophecy, or at least looking ahead to this day, is one of the most significant political developments in the entire history of the world And I want us to see this evening who is the God who speaks this prophecy into existence, who in fact takes credit for the political upheavings of the day and who speaks words of comfort to his people Israel in the midst of their own absolute and utter national catastrophe being exiled in the land of Babylon. I'm going to call the message tonight simply the God of history the God of history, that is to say that there is a God in heaven who brought about all the history that we study in our Bible today and who today is working about history that all those who follow us will look back to and realize was his hand. Now, when we understand, I think, what Isaiah 41 is communicating, we'll be able to take some teaching for ourselves as we are at this election moment in our history and for the days that will come after it. I'm going to break Isaiah 41, verse 1 through 14, into just three sections here that will help us just work through this text. I hope you have your Bibles open or in whatever device you have available. We need to be looking at this text and making sure that we're being honest to its context and to It's truth. I want to start with the first section I'm going to call God's authority. God's authority. Now, it would not be new to me to break Isaiah into a couple of different um, uh, segments, if you will. You've got the first 30 or so chapters of the book of Isaiah that are dealing with curses against God's people and the surrounding nations absolute catastrophe. God's judgment is predicted upon them, prophesied to come certainly because of their rebellion. Now, this prophecy was written in around 700 BC. If You just think around 700 years before the time of Christ, you'd be in the right ballpark. Now, in the middle of Isaiah 30, the, there's, there's a few chapters that deal with just historical things. The time of Hezekiah, the great uh, triumph over Sennacherib. And that's its own kind of mini section of Isaiah taking us up to Isaiah 39. And then we get to Isaiah 40. And suddenly the the scene completely shifts. Comfort ye, comfort ye my people, saith the Lord. Speak ye comfortably to Jerusalem. Tell her that her warfare is Accomplished. And then we have these great uh, 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 swelling passages for those of you who are going to see the Messiah in a month or so, these different prophecies. Behold your God. And we talked about that a little bit this morning. And then Isaiah 40 ends with, again, a very famous passage. Look with me at verse 30. Even the youth shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary, and they shall walk and not faint. And God is telling his discouraged, defeated people, this is a prophecy to hundreds of years in the future, Um, uh, uh, at a time when they are in exile and God is telling his people, don't faint, don't be weary, wait on me, your strength will be renewed, my prophecies will come to pass. Now turn to uh, chapter 41 and verse 1. Keep silence before me, O islands, and let the people, now notice this, renew their strength. Same phrase has just been used in verse 31 of chapter 40. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. Now God is speaking to the islands. The idea literally here is the coastal lands. Places that are on the coast. And the idea here is that he's getting at are those who are spread out. He's speaking, if you will, to the uttermost parts of the earth, not just the people of Israel. All the isles, all the coastal lands, we ourselves might be included within this phrase. Notice what he is inviting them. He's saying, let them come near, then let them speak. Let us come near together to judgment. Now what's God saying here? God is saying to the people of all the world, he's saying, you're in my courtroom. I am the judge. Come and we're going to have words in my courtroom. And God is inviting them in to to contend with him, if you will, as the God of sovereign authority. Do you remember Isaiah 40? If you go back to verse 28 of chapter 40, listen to what he says. Hast thou not known, hast thou not heard that the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, And now God is saying, I've created you. You're mine. I'm summoning you to my courtroom. We're going to have words together. What a dramatic statement by the authority of Almighty Jehovah God to say, I'm the boss. Now look at verse two. He's going to ask them a question. Who raised up the righteous man from the east, called him to his foot, gave the nations before him, and made him rule over kings? He gave them as the dust to his sword and as driven stubble to his bow. He pursued them and passed safely, even by the way that he had not gone with his feet. Who's he talking about here? He's asking the coastal lands to say, who was the one who called and raised up this righteous man from the east? Now, there are two main interpretations of this passage. One is to say, God is talking about Abraham, a righteous man from the east, because he was, Abraham is referred to as a righteous man. But that does not seem to fit with the context, because the context here is God saying, this righteous man is going to come, and he's going to have a bow, and he's going to have a sword, and he is going to rule, and he's going to conquer, and I've given it to him. And that tells us, I think, that the right identification here is that this is a man called Cyrus II or Cyrus the Great. Now again, if you're a history buff, you probably know more than I do about Cyrus the Great, but I learned a little bit more about him. Cyrus the Great was, was born sometime around 600 B.C., so about 100 or so years after Isaiah wrote this prophecy. Do you know Cyrus the Great is identified by name in the book of Isaiah before he was born? Now, this has caused skeptics and cynics of the Bible to say, well, he couldn't, they poss- couldn't possibly have written it. This is just, they're just trying to predict. This is, this is people who wrote it after his time and pretended that it was written before him. But the word of God stands clear. Cyrus was called by name. Josephus, the Jewish historian, says that Cyrus actually saw the prophecy of Isaiah that identified him by name before he was born. And that was part of his decision to allow the Jews to return back to their homelands. Again, that's Josephus' view on that. But we see here Cyrus the Great. Cyrus the Great was the the head of the Achaemenid Empire. The Achaemenid Empire, A-C-H-A-E-M-E-N-I-D. This was, and I saw this in the, the, the Encyclopedia Britannica, which doesn't lie, I'll tell you that much. The Encyclopedia Britannica, no less, says that this was the greatest empire that the world had ever known to this point. Cyrus the Great uh, 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 ruled over the greatest landmass that the world had ever seen to date. Cyrus the Great conquered the Median Empire. You've heard of the Medes and the Persians. The Median Empire was conquered by this Persian king. He conquered the Lydian Empire. He conquered the Babylonian Empire, which we read so much about in Scripture. His reign extended, and if you see the map, if I could put a map up here, you'd really truly see the extent, but maybe you'll look it up when you get home. His reign extended from the Mediterranean Sea, the land of Israel, and even overlapping above the Mediterranean Sea, all the way to what we would call today Northern India. Just over the massive land of Western Asia, Central Asia, into northern India, an incredible landmass that Cyrus the Great ruled over. And so when God identifies this righteous man from the east, he seems very clearly to be talking about Cyrus, who called him to his foot, he gave the nations before him, he made him rule over kings, he gave them as the dust to his sword, and as driven stubble to his. Bo. Now it's actually interesting if you if you research Cyrus the Great, what an, a profound effect he had on world history. They've actually found archaeologically a cylinder, a writing called the Cyrus Cylinder. It's gone on tour in the United States. It was a proclamation that he made upon conquering the Babylonian Empire. And Cyrus is one of his great innovations, if you will, was rather than conquering empires and then coming in and forcing them to worship his god, Marduk, he came in and just allowed, if you will, a religious liberty, a religious tolerance. And actually, there, there is, is credit to him as being extremely influential in this kind of same way of religious liberty and tolerance. In fact, Cyrus... Uh, influenced, or at least his his the story of Cyrus influenced our founders in the American uh, uh, independence. Thomas Jefferson owned two copies. of of a biography of Cyrus written by a man named Xenophon, a Greek philosopher, and read in them and marked marked in them. And his example of religious tolerance and religious liberty may very well have been a very significant influence in our founding fathers um, in the religious liberty and religious tolerance that we have under our First Amendment. Cyrus the Great is an absolutely towering figure in world history, and what's so unique when you understand biblically about him is is that a hundred years or so before he was born, God was identifying him by name and saying, "He's mine. I'm taking credit for everything that Cyrus does." I'm just going to take you to a couple passages so you can see. Turn over to Isaiah chapter 44. Isaiah chapter 44, and start in verse 28. Speaking of God, he says, That saith of Cyrus, he is my shepherd. Here's a pagan king, the great emperor who would come in a hundred or so, a hundred and fifty or so years. And he says, He is my shepherd and shall perform all my pleasure, even saying to Jerusalem, Thou shalt be built, and to the temple thy foundation shall be laid. Thus saith the Lord to his anointed. To his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have holden, to subdue nations before him, and I will loose the loins of kings to open before him the two-leaved gates, and the gates shall not be shut. I will go before thee, Cyrus, and make the crooked places straight. Remember the prophecy of Messiah? that God would make the crooked places straight before Messiah, Jesus. He has the same kind of language before Cyrus, a pagan king. I will break in pieces the gates of brass and cut in sunder the bars of iron, and I will give thee the treasures of darkness and hidden riches of secret places that thou mayest know that I, the Lord, which call thee by thy name, am the God of Israel. For Jacob, my servant's sake, and Israel, mine elect, I have even called thee by thy name. I have surnamed thee Though thou hast not known me, Cyrus, I was the one who called you by name. I am the Lord, and there is none else. There is no God beside me. I girded thee, though thou hast not known me, that they may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none beside me. I am the Lord, and there is none else. I form the light and create darkness. I make peace, and listen to this, and create evil. Now, that word there has the idea of calamity, disaster. Do you know God himself assigns the right to create catastrophe and disaster? That's God. He has that authority. Now, listen, turn then over to chapter 46. Notice what God says is, again, identifying his sovereign authority. He says, verse 9 of chapter 46, Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is none else. I am God, and there is none like me. I'm in a class by myself, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times, in the past, the things that are not yet done, in the future, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. God exercises to himself complete sovereign authority to do whatever he counsels to be done. Now listen to this. Calling a ravenous bird from the east. Who's the ravenous bird from the east? Cyrus. Same one. The one who would raven and destroy, who would destroy multiple empires. God says, I've called him. And, he's in, and he will be like a ravenous bird. And he will... Listen, the man that executeth my counsel from a far country, yea, I have spoken it. I will also bring it to pass. I have purposed it. I will also do it. Friends, God is assigning to himself the sovereign authority to exercise all his purposes and all his counsels in the affairs of men. And we should be honest with ourselves. That's not just Cyrus that's every leader, every ruler, every king, every empire. You say, where does that come? Do you remember the book of Daniel? Do you remember God's message to, the, to, to the Nebuchadnezzar, this proud king? God drives him down to be like a wild animal. And listen to the word that comes to Nebuchadnezzar. This demand is by the word of the holy ones to the intent that the living may know that the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men and giveth it to whomsoever he will and setteth up over it the basest or the lowest of men. God rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whoever he will, whoever he desires. He makes the same point elsewhere. Psalms 33, verses 10 and 11. The Lord brings the counsel of the heathen, literally the nations, to to nothing. Let the world scheme. Let the nations do their foreign policy. Let the North Koreans launch their missiles. Let the Chinese decide how they will try to uh, have greater influence in the East. Let them all scheme and strategize. And the Lord brings it to naught, to nothing. He makes the devices, the strategies of the people of none effect. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The thoughts of his heart to all generations. He said, let it be done. You can strategize and scheme all you want. It's my purposes that will be done. It's my counsel that will stand Listen to what Proverbs 21 says in verse number 1. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord as the rivers of water. He turns it whithersoever he will, wherever he desires, wherever he wants. God says, my counsel shall stand. I will do all my purposes in every ruler across all the kingdoms of men. I am in charge. I am in control. And this is exactly what he's telling his people in Isaiah 41 and verses 1 through 4. Now go back to Isaiah 41, just a couple chapters now. And now look with me at verse 5. Because we're going to see not just God's authority, but man's idolatry. How does man respond to the sovereign authority of God being exercised in the affairs of men? Notice verse 5. The isles, remember God says, keep silence before me all coastal lands. You come into my courtroom for judgment. Now the isles are going to speak up. Listen to what those coastal lands say. The isles saw it. Saw what? Cyrus. The execution of God's judgment. And feared. They were afraid. Do you know mankind fears what they cannot control? None of us really fear the pit bull who's locked in behind the fence and chained up when we walk through the neighborhood. Do you know what we fear? We fear the one who's off the leash and heading toward us. We can't control him. He's not under control. We don't fear nations that we can control. We fear the ones we can't control and who have the have the power to hurt us. And now these isles, these coastal lands who see Cyrus the Great coming to exercise God's judgment on them, they're utterly terrified. They're utterly afraid. Talk about foreign policy for the last how many ever years. The ends of the earth were afraid, drew near, and came. Now look at verse 6. They helped everyone his neighbor, and everyone said to his brother, be of good courage. Huh. Notice alongside their fear came their solidarity. Do you notice what's happening here? They can't control what's going on it, with Cyrus the Great. So what do they say? Let's keep a sunny face. Let's try hard. Let's acquit ourselves like good soldiers. Be of good courage. Stand up, buck up. We're going to stick together, and we're going to fight this out. That's what they're saying. Be of good courage. It's solidarity. Now notice what they say in verse 7. So the carpenter encouraged the goldsmith, and he that smootheth with the hammer encouraged, that's the idea, him that smote the anvil, saying, it is ready for the soldering. And he fastened it with nails that it should not be moved. You say, what is he talking about? He's talking about idols. The isles, the coastal lands, instead of bowing before the judgment of Almighty God who's inviting them into his courtroom for judgment, they say, guys, let's fight. Let's band together. Let's push back. And where's our idols? And here's the great irony. I just absolutely love this. Do you notice how often God's prophets just have the most biting satire and the most biting irony against idolatry? They say, you take a piece of wood, you cut down a tree, and you carve it out, and you take some of it to bake, and you take some of it to make warm, and then you take the rest of it and you stick it up for a God, and that's your God? Like You're crazy. And there's a little bit of this... Irony in this satire here too, because at the end of verse seven, it says, It is ready for the soldering, and he fastened it with nails that it should not be moved. Literally, the idea is that it should not totter. And it's God saying, That's exactly what your idols are. They're just tottering. They have no security, they have no stability. You have to nail it up to have any security. What kind of security is that? So again, notice this contrast. God exercises his sovereign authority to say, Cyrus, this pagan king, is my choice, my counsel, my purpose will stand. You come near to my courtroom. And how do the isles respond? Let's stick together. Let's band together. Let's fight. And let's not worship Jehovah God. Let's turn to our idols that we have to nail up to keep from tottering and falling over. That's the response In man's idolatry. And I think there's a real lesson there. There's a real lesson. We'll get to that in a little bit. Now turn um, to verse number 8. We're going to look at verse 8 through 14. Verses 1 through 4 was God's authority. Verses 5 through 7 was man's idolatry. And now look, verses 8 through 14 is Israel's security. Let's just go through these verses quickly. But thou, Israel, art my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the seed of Abraham, my friend. What an amazing thing that God tells Abraham, calls Abraham his friend. God is identifying a relationship, a covenant relationship with his people of Israel. He is saying, I have chosen you. I have called you. I have loved you. You are mine. And what does he say? Thou whom I have taken, verse 9, from the ends of the earth and called thee from the chief men thereof and said unto thee, Thou art my servant, you Israel. I have chosen thee and not cast thee away. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Friends, some of you need to to memorize verse 10 and make it an absolute foundation stone of your Christian life. You need to memorize that verse, and when fear comes into your life and anxiety that cripples you, you need to stand on this verse and meditate until it becomes a a part of the fabric of your soul, just part of your spiritual DNA. Why? Because listen to what God is saying to his people Israel as the sovereign king over everyone. I will be with you. Don't be dismayed. I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with the right hand, the powerful right hand of my righteousness. Now look at verse 11. Behold, all they that were incensed against thee, all your enemies, Shall be ashamed and confounded, they shall be as nothing, and they that strive with thee shall perish. Thou shalt seek them and shalt not find them, even them that contended with thee, they that war against thee shall be as nothing and as a thing of naught. For I, the Lord thy God, will hold thy right hand, saying unto thee, Fear not, I will help thee. Now look at verse 14. Fear not thou worm, Jacob. You worm. Now, God, I don't think he's trying to insult him. He's saying this. Look at yourself. You're in captivity. You're in exile. You have no power. You have no kingdom. You have no global influence, Israel. You're literally captives. You're a worm, a helpless worm. And he says, but don't fear. Don't fear, you little worm. Why? I will help thee, saith the Lord, and thy redeemer The covenant purchaser, the Holy One of Israel. He goes on to say in verse 15, I will make thee a new sharp threshing instrument having teeth. You're a worm right now, but someday you are going to be my threshing instrument across all nations, across the mountains, across the hills. What an incredible prophecy. What is going on here? Here is the sovereign God who says Cyrus is mine and I will take him to distribute my judgment across this empire and I will use him to send my people back to their land. Read about it in Ezra. The people who went back under Cyrus's decree. I am bringing out history based on my purposes. And then he looks at his people, this worm in exile, in captivity. Again, this was written before the people were in captivity. He's prophesying to the people who one day will be in exile, in captivity. He's saying, don't you dare be afraid. Don't you know who I am? I'm God, and there's no one like me. I will do it for my name's sake and for my purposes. Now, let me hasten to say this. Can we apply this encouragement to ourselves. Well, just one point, I think, certainly that makes this applicable to us. Notice what he says. But thou, Israel, art my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the seed of Abraham, my friend. Are you the seed of Abraham? Not in a physical sense. But you are, if you're in Jesus Christ, Because Galatians 3 tells us, Know ye therefore that they which are of faith, the same are the children of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, that's us, preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, In thee shall all nations be blessed, so then they which be of faith are blessed with faithful Abraham. You and me in Christ are the children of Abraham in whom these promises of covenant relationship with Almighty God are just as valid and applicable to our spiritual, individual relationship with God. An incredible promise. Now, what does that mean for us? On perhaps a a particularly important part of American history, a part where we are confronting our own election in two days and Ones and years that we're being told all of these messages of fear and anxiety. Let me suggest just a couple things I think that are really important. The first application that I draw from this myself is to completely submit to the God of history. To completely submit ourselves to the God of history. That is to say, this God has counsel and purposes for this election on Tuesday that he has seen in advance and purposed will be done and they will be done. And because he is the god of history in the day of Cyrus, when he called Cyrus to power and allowed him to run roughshod over the entire uh, uh, empire of that day, conquering empire after empire after empire, so God has purposes for America in this particular season of history and ultimately we must completely submit to him and say, God, you are, you do rule over the kingdom of men and you do give it to whomsoever you will and you put over it the basest of men. We may not like it sometimes but we kneel before his sovereign authority and say you are God your counsel will stand and you will do all your purpose submit submit ourselves here's one way that we submit ourselves we remember what Jesus said when he said seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you We submit to him when we set as our compass, as our guiding force, as our sole priority, the advance of the kingdom of God in this world, and particularly in the redemption of lost sinners. So the first thing I say as we look ahead to an election in two days is to say, submit yourself. Know that he is in control and that you can trust him entirely to bring out history in this country that will accomplish his greater purposes for his glory and for the advance of his kingdom. Submit to him. The second thing that we should acknowledge is that we must reject an ungodly solidarity. Submit to him requires rejecting an ungodly solidarity. Do you remember what the islands did? the islands got together and said, hey, let's just encourage ourselves. Let's encourage ourselves for the fight. Let's encourage ourselves to stand up against the purposes of Jehovah. And here's our idol that we'll nail up along the side. My point is this. There is a tendency when we lose our submission to the God of history, to the King of kings and to the Lord of lords, is to identify solidarity with those who are on our team or against our team. And it becomes a zero-sum game of teams in our political landscape. If they're, that team is winning, then we're losing. And if we're winning, then they're losing. So we must always be on our teams. And I just think, friends, biblically, those who are God's people say, we're not on those teams. That, that's just not, we have a different team altogether. I was reminded of this as we were reading in Jeremiah recently. Will you turn over to Jeremiah chapter 38? I want to just supplement this with some things that have been standing out to me or that have jumped out to me in the past as we've read through Jeremiah. Notice in chapter 38 and verse 1, this is the story of Jeremiah's prophecy. Then shephatiah the son of Matan and Gedaliah the son of Pasher and Jukal the son of Shelemiah, and Pasher the son of Malchiah heard the words that Jeremiah had spoken unto all the people saying, Thus saith the Lord, He that remaineth in this city in Jerusalem shall die by the sword, by the famine, and by the pestilence. But he that goes forth to the Chaldean shall live, for he shall have his life for a prey and shall live. Thus saith the Lord, this city, Jerusalem, shall surely be given into the hand of the king of Babylon's army, which shall take it. Now how do the princes of Babylon respond to the word of the Lord? Therefore the princes said unto the king, We beseech thee, let this man be put to death, For thus he weakens the hands of the men of war, the soldiers that remain in this city, and the hands of all the people in speaking such words unto them. For this man seeks not the welfare of this people, but the hurt. What were they saying? He's not on our team. He's not fighting with the good guys, he's criticizing the good guys. And he's giving support and encouragement to the bad guys by telling us to surrender and go out. And these people said, give us solidarity. Let's all encourage ourselves. Let's encourage ourselves for the fight and not realizing that in standing against Jeremiah, they were truly standing against the council and the purposes of Almighty God. And I only say that to say, whenever we get into a team mentality, we can never criticize those who are on our team. We can never speak the truth about things that are wrong on our political team. We exercise an unbiblical solidarity and ultimately, we step out of the purposes of the king, of kings, the God of history. My encouragement to you, just be a person of integrity. Don't step into a team mentality that has got to be a zero-sum. Either we're winning or they're winning. Either we're losing or they're losing. Stand on the authority of the Bible. Call the, call the behavior of our political leaders as you see them. And just simply say I'm a member of the kingdom of God. That's my priority, first and foremost. And let the chips fall where they may. Submit ourselves and reject a kind of ungodly solidarity that breaks into teams and loses our Christian integrity. But thirdly, and this is where I want to end tonight, the third thing I think when we truly are on the side of the king of kings And trying to accomplish his purposes is to cooperate with the God of history. Cooperate with him. You say, what does that mean? Turn over, if you will, to Jeremiah 29. Again, I want to point us to something I think that should be a help for us tonight. Jeremiah 29. Jeremiah in in chapter 29 is writing a letter to the people who are in exile they haven't gotten Cyrus's decree to go back to Jerusalem yet. It's still before that day. They're still in captivity for now, still decades into the future. And they're wondering, what do we do here? Are we, we going to be staying here for a long time? What's our purpose going to be here? And listen to what Jeremiah says to them. Verse 4. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, unto all that are carried away captives, whom I have caused to be carried away from Jerusalem unto Babylon. Build ye houses and dwell in them, Jeremiah says. Build houses in this exile land. Plant gardens and eat the fruit of them. Settle down for a little bit. Take ye wives and beget sons and daughters and take wives for your sons and give your daughters to husbands that they may bear sons and daughters that ye may be increased there and not diminished. And Listen to verse 7. And seek the peace of the city, whither I have caused you to be carried away captives, and pray unto the Lord for it. For in the peace thereof shall ye have peace. Now that word peace there is the word you know in the Hebrew is shalom. But do you know what shalom means? It doesn't mean the peace that is just free from conflict. The word shalom literally means their welfare. Here's some ways it's translated in our King James Bible. It's been translated welfare, prosperity, health, well, like wellness, safe, like safety. It's just their overall good, their overall welfare. Think about what God's saying to the people in exile. You're in a strange land of people who have been carried away, who have carried you away captive cruelly. You make sure to seek their welfare because in their welfare will be your own. Now, I think there is an analogy and an application that we can make here to our situation as 21st century Americans, because your citizenship is not as an American fundamentally. It's as a Christian. Our conversation, Paul says, our citizenship, literally in Philippians 3, is in heaven from whence we wait for the Savior Our citizenship is there. That's our first loyalty. That's our first priority. And so we, being described as strangers and exiles in the New Testament, are placed in the land that is not our home, no matter how comfortable it may be. And I think this message of God to the people of captivity in his day can be applied rightly to us. What's our goal? Seek the welfare of the place where we live. Seek their good. And you know, friends, you can do that on Tuesday. You can seek the good of your fellow neighbors in Minneapolis or wherever city you're in of, of Minnesota, of the United States. And you should do that. Some of you are called to try to seek the welfare of the citizens of this country by public policy or by being a politician or being involved in other pursuits. And you should do that. You should seek the welfare of the people where you are called to be. You should seek the welfare of those who are unborn. You should seek the welfare of those who are poor or oppressed. You should seek the welfare of those who are confused by a world that is telling them all of these lies about their sexual or their gender identity. You should seek their welfare. You should seek their good. And there is a calling there for us. The point ultimately Is that when we are seeking the good of those around us, we need never fear. We need never fear failure because there is no ultimate failure. Ultimately, His purposes, His counsel will stand. And so we can stand with complete confidence to say, I don't need to be afraid. I don't need to look ahead to the future and wonder whether I am going to, whether God's purposes are going to be done. No, what should you do? Seek first the kingdom of God, seek the welfare of your neighbors. Seek the welfare of your fellow citizens and ultimately rely and trust completely on the counsel and the sovereign purposes of Jehovah God who brought all history to pass and one day is going to be bringing, will be bringing everything about our present into the future in a way that he will ultimately superintend. Now what does that mean? It means this, don't be afraid, don't give in to fear and anxiety, and ultimately trust the kingdom of God that he is bringing out his purposes as we see them. We serve a God of history. He was the God of history that was working through Cyrus. He's the God of history that is working through our political leaders today, whether you voted for them or not, and he will be the one who will be bringing about, through our political leaders, his purposes for this country, and for our world in the days ahead. Let's read these words of Isaiah chapter 41 and trust ourselves entirely to him without any fear, no matter what happens this Tuesday.